You're listening to episode 47 of Chat About Children with Sonia Bestelich. Let's chat. Discover children at a whole new level. Be empowered to grow with the children in your life. Welcome to Chat About Children with Sonia Bestelich. Hi there and welcome to Chat About Children where we chat about all things children and empower you to grow with the children in your life. Today's episode is a super interesting topic. It's all about sensory processing. We're going to help you understand today what it is and why is it such an important necessity for our successful daily functioning. So why don't we get this chat started with my guest, Dave Jerob. Dave is an occupational therapist and co-owner of Move About Therapy Services and SenseAbility, paediatric occupational therapy clinics in the Hills District of Sydney and on the central coast of New South Wales in Australia. He has a Bachelor of Applied Sciences Occupational Therapy and a Master's of Health Sciences Occupational Therapy from the University of Sydney. Dave has worked in multidisciplinary teams in Sydney and Chicago and is known for having expertise in working with children with challenging behaviours, sensory processing challenges, regulatory difficulties and difficulties in engaging and relating, including autism spectrum disorders. He has presented workshops entitled Connecting with Kids with ASD and a dynamic approach to regulation and behaviour. Dave enjoys mentoring therapists both within his two clinics and externally to his two clinics. He does believe in lifelong learning and always seeks to learn more about himself and is also the co-author of the Move About Activity Cards, a resource that provides children and families with physical activities to support attention and regulation. Dave Jerob, welcome to Chat About Children. Thanks, Anya. Very excited to have you here because today's topic is all about sensory processing and this is something that a lot of people hear about but don't always understand it unless they have a child or work with a child who has sensory processing issues. So I'm really excited that we get into this topic today and just build some awareness out there in the community. So before we get into that, Dave, can you just give us a brief on on yourself and why you went into OT to start with? Yeah, I would say that I come from a family that's been in a lot of caring and teaching professions. So I have lots of teachers, school principals, librarians, as well as social workers and OTs. And so I got into the disability field when I was about 14. My mum offered me $20 if I'd volunteer for the day. I don't know if that still counts as volunteering. Wow. But then I loved it. And so I stayed on volunteering. That was back with Bernardo's in that day. And did respite work and in-home care and holiday programs. And to be honest, my sister is also an OT. And so she's a little bit older than me. And I got to see her work as an OT. And I was like, this is fantastic. And funnily enough, I I also managed to fall in love and marry an OT (laughs) as well. So my wife is an OT. It's not surprising. (laughs) So that's what you had some wonderful work experience and exposure to, I guess, the helping field. And so it sounds like you almost within yourself, you kind of knew already, you know what, this is for me. Yeah, I think so. I think it was a really good fit and it's great to find Kathy. She's the best OT. Did she pay you 20 bucks to say that? (laughs) She did. did. (laughs) But yeah, great to work in this field and to the families are amazing and, and OTs are amazing. So it's good to get to work with a bunch of OTs too. Wonderful. I do agree. Definitely. Tell us very briefly, for those that are listening and still aren't too sure what an OT does, can you give us a real brief on that? Yeah, that's the question every OT tries to figure out how to say. But uh, OTs work with people's occupations. 
And so people think of occupations as jobs. I like to say it's more general than that. It's what occupies your time, if you like. So it's activities, the daily living, your functioning, how you function at home, in the community, at school. And for kids, their primary role is a player and social roles and then heading towards their work roles in school as well. So we're helping kids with all of those things and we might be looking at gross motor and fine motor and how they apply to those things, sensory, cognitive, mental health pieces to it as well. Fantastic, because it is a really broad area. So thank you for summarising that quite nicely. So Dave, tell us now about sensory processing. What is it? That's also a good question. (laughs) (laughs) So I sometimes get on a bit of a bandwagon or sometimes people say that sensory integration is controversial. And I want to say that actually sensory processing is not controversial. It's a neurological process that's really straightforward. There's a type of treatment called sensory integration treatment that is developing evidence and we can talk about that. But sensory processing is just, to me, common sense. We take in information from our senses, we use it to make a plan, and then our body does that plan. Ginez is the person who first developed sensory integration theory and she talked about it as being the organisation of sensation for use. And there really hasn't been a better definition than that. So basically we use our senses to get information about the world. We, and in order to plan our actions, we also use sensation to wake our bodies up and calm our bodies down. And that's the gist of it. Yeah. And we're, it's happening all the time. All the time. Yeah, Everybody. Yes. So my mum's funny. She's been around with this and she's like, oh, I'm just so sensory. Or this person's so sensory. I'm like, we're all so sensory. All <laughs> people say, this kid needs sensory. And it's like everything's sensory. Yes. But it's about working out what do we need? What's the right match? What helps us? wake up enough to pay attention in class or calm down enough so that we can sit for our tele-educational session or to get enough information to be able to use our fingers to do this particular activity. Okay. Can you give us, you're painting some little examples in there. Can you paint a really basic example that everyone can really relate to in terms of when you mentioned, okay, your senses receive information and then you make a plan. Give us a really basic one that everyone goes, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, I get that, put that together. Look, it's happening with everything we do. But so if someone walks into the room, you're going to notice that before you even think about it and you're going to orient to that person so you can engage with them. You're having to tune into the information from the teacher and process that while you're then telling your, you know, your eyes are picking up on the page that you need to write on where the lines are so that then you can write between those lines. And Those things seem so simple, we don't even think about it. But for some of our kids, they're not simple. Some of our kids can't localize where the sound's coming from and they're a bit lost in space or they're really anxious about where that sound came from. Some of our kids, you know, are bright kids and can take in that information. They go to write it on the page and their letters are floating above the line and below the line and they don't look anything like the letters that you and I are writing. And that's about just having a sense of where those things are in relation to each other and how we get our hands and our eyes to talk together and into interact with the objects in the environment to do what we need to do. Fantastic. And there you've just started to broach on what difficulties can look like in a very practical sense. Can you tell us more about what do sensory processing difficulties look like in the everyday? And this might be at home. So if we can think about the home context and what could it look like in an early education setting and in a classroom setting? Yeah, definitely. So sensory processing, you can really break it down into two areas that I've sort of talked about. There can be challenges with modulation or people generally call it regulation. And there can also be challenges with praxis. So that's motor planning. So 
you as a speech would often talk about oral praxis, oral dyspraxia. I would say as an OT, we see that people are a lot more tolerant in everyday life of clumsy walkers than they are of clumsy talkers. So people get people to a speech therapist sometimes quicker for coordination of the mouth than they would to an OT for coordination of the body. So in terms of regulation, kids... Well, parents might see kids overreact to different sensory experiences of touch, sound, movement, taste, sights. These are things like, you know, not being able to tune out the tag in your shirt. I'm wearing a shirt that's our polo for Move About and it has a tag in it. I have about seven of these. Two of them don't have tags in it. So probably of 500 times of wearing a Move About shirt, I've got to the stage twice in that existence that I just couldn't stand my tag and I had to rip it out. Whether I was a bit edgy, I had a stressful day, I had a cold, it was a hot day, you know, something hit me to that threshold where I could not tune it out. Because mostly you put it on, you might notice it, and then you habituate, you get used to it. And there have been two times that I haven't been able to, and those shirts don't have tags in it. We have kids that could never wear a shirt with a tag in it. They notice seams in their socks. They can't do sticky play or messy play. Uh, they might overreact to different sounds like thunder or dogs barking they could be picky eaters and so have problems with food textures or tastes or smell they might be worried about taking their feet off their ground or getting their head out of 90 degrees so those sensitivities to movement is common as well uh, they could also be under responding and just not tuning in they don't notice when someone walks in the door or when their parents call their name they're missing details of the work they need to do so they're not getting that straight Maybe they don't notice that they've got food all over their face, so they could be not tuning in enough to things. The tricky part, so that's really simple, but it can also be mixed. You can have some of one, some of another. It's really common to have kids that overreact to touch and, and sound, but then seek a lot of movement and throw their body around and into things to try and feel grounded as part of that. So that's where the general idea of that regulation piece you can get and you can probably find those things that you can grab onto, but it, that's where an OT can really help to figure out what's that. In terms of motor planning, these are your clumsy kids, uncoordinated kids, kids having trouble coming up with ideas for movement, difficulty planning their approach, sequencing that, their actions and using both sides of their body in a coordinated way. So that can be with gross motor and sports and PE. It can also be with fine motor and while like I do get a lot of people go well I wasn't coordinated and I did okay in life that's abs that's true these kids will survive but they are a little more susceptible to without that support life can be a lot harder and their world can get a bit smaller and they're at greater risk for mental health problems in adolescence as well so yes uncoordinated yes. isn't just you're uncoordinated you'll choose things that don't need that there are some other things that flow on from that so at what point, and you've mentioned a wide range there of, you know, how it can present in daily life. Did you mention, I may have missed it, Dave, so I apologize if I did. Did you mention about kind of the visual side, like bright, things being too bright or et cetera? Did you bring that up and I missed it? I mean, I said sights, but yeah, yeah. So kids might not adjust to that light when they leave the house, when you're used to it. They can also be not tuning in enough. So again, I did mention missing details and they're kids that are never going to find Where's Wally. Yes. <laughs> and there's yes. a lot of pieces to that as well. Okay. Okay. Thank you. So at what point then is someone going to say, you know what, we need to make a referral to CNOT? Now, this is outside of obviously, you know, 
myself and many other speech pathologists, we get we're often trained in and get further training on identifying this. And so we can then guide, often we'll guide parents to say, you know what, this is what we're observing. This is what an OT does. We make a referral. But for parents who are noticing some of the things you've described, is there any kind of, often, you know, parents kind of go, oh, we'll just wait and see, you know, but then how long do you wait and see? And I find that's often the point that's missed. Often parents say, oh, we just thought we'd wait and see, but then they never actually decide how long to wait and see for. So then it goes on and on and on when they potentially could have, you know, perhaps addressed it a bit sooner. And that's with all intention of, oh, maybe, maybe. So is there that kind of let's wait and see period with sensory difficulties that kids might grow out of something? Like how does a parent or educator know when? Yeah, I mean, there is, absolutely there is. There is with everything that someone might bring to an OT because one, we don't want to be, we don't want to be creating problems for kids. We don't want them to feel different. So if it's not there, we don't want to make something of it as a parent. You know, I've got kids myself and, you know, they do quirky things and you think, well, should we check that out or, or not? And, I mean, you do have to notice those things. In OT, we say that OT is about function and daily life. And so if it's getting in the way of function, then you should see an OT. And it might not be that you need to be in years and years of therapy, but it's worth getting that, that opinion and that idea. So that's a really boring way of saying it. But function for kids is, you know, is it impacting their ability to engage socially? Is it impacting their ability to do the things they need to do at home? You know, is it impacting their learning, their ability to access the community? If it's hitting any of those things, then it's time to see an OT. And sometimes it's hard for parents when they're an only child or, you know, it's hard to know what to compare it to. At our practice, we really encourage families, well, give us a call and have a chat about it. To be honest, we have massive waiting lists. We're not, and we do a good job. We don't, we're not going to try and get you to come in for the business. We love what we do because we do a great job. And if we're not the right match for you, we want to help you find the right match. So me personally, as a parent, I would like to err on the side of getting more information. And sometimes the other thing that happens is families are really nurturing ecosystems that sometimes you do need to listen to your educators as well. And it's very possible that this kid can be functioning fine in their home environment where they've got control, they've got their toys, they've got their room, they've got their family that's in a groove together, but then a different environment like school, it's completely different. And that can be the hardest for parents. I have parents going, you know, the teacher doesn't believe me because they're fine at school. And kids sometimes actually can actually, that can be the the opposite can happen where they can be fine at school and they're socially aware enough that they sort of pull it together and they bite their lip and they get through it and then they get to the person that feels safest, who will love them no matter what, and they can be one context to another. But, yeah, I would say trust your gut and just make a phone call and, and ask. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's getting that peace of mind and I, I'm all for that. If you've got concerns, don't worry. Don't look at Google too much because <laughs> that will I usually get parents that are even extra worried because they have looked at Google so much and it's kind of cutting through all that talk to someone who's able to just have a genuine conversation with you about your child and, and able to advise you from there but get the peace of mind instead of kind of simmering over worry so thank you so I agree with that Dave that's wonderful advice so when we're looking at, you know, assessing sensory processing, and this is, again, just to familiarise people because it is so such an unknown territory 
for parents and educators. And if an educator is saying, hey, you know, I recommend an occupational therapy assessment, often parents, if they haven't heard of it, will just go, what's that all about? So in essence, take away the, the question mark or the fear around what happens in an assessment? Because it is fun with OTs especially. Am I generalizing? But OTs yeah. do have a little bit more fun sometimes with the different activities that you do. Yeah, it is. To be honest, in terms of assessment, we think the assessment's pretty boring compared to the treatment. But yeah, true. So we're always surprised that kids actually do some kind of assessment fun and we're like, no, this is the boring bit. Wait till we get to the good room. So assessment, again, if we're looking at to take it a step forward and then come back, our goals of treatment need to be function focused. So daily, we want to see daily life look better for families. Yeah. And then we want to work out what are the things underlying that that could be contributing to those challenges. So that can be complex. It is a lot of questionnaires and surveys in terms of the regulation piece. So parents will often do one or two questionnaires. One of them we can just send out and they can do online. So we have the sensory profile and the sensory processing measure are the two most common ones that give us standardized scores based on the parent going, you know, is this from never to almost always reacting to seams in their soul? more than same age, more than almost always, or is it never doesn't notice when someone enters the room? So the parent will just tick that box. There's room for some comments and some more information, and that'll give us a lot of information. When they come into the clinic, we will do observations. We'll do some standardized testing. Around the sensory processing motor planning aspects, we're often looking at things from Postural control, core strength and arm strength and coordination through testing where we get kids to balance. Stand on one leg, see how long you can do it for. Walk along the line, jump with one hand, your left hand and foot forward and your right hand and foot back, and then you're going to switch and switch and switch. And now we'll put with opposite. We can see how they can get left and right working together. To look at that strength and coordination, to be honest, a lot of the times kids with the regulation, so those overreacting or underreacting, also have problems with core and they might be more biased to certain patterns. Sometimes they're really good at certain things and tricky with other things. But so we're going to have a look at gross motor, fine motor. We're going to fill out some forms around sensory experiences and maybe ask you some questions around that. And we do sort of standardized set ways of doing it, doing it. And then we'll go and have a play in our gym space that has swings and slide and ball pit and just see how you interact with the environment when I'm not giving you the plan how you explore, how you come up with ideas in terms of play. And, and our environments are pretty easy to play in if you have the ideas and the ability to know how to use your body. Fantastic. And so how is therapy? You say therapy is a lot more fun. Just give us a little bit of a sneak peek or a picture of uh, why and how. Yeah, so OTs always want to use meaningful, purposeful occupation again that's the boring way of saying we want to do things that kids are motivated to do and meaning's not just that it's motivated so they'll do it harder that is true but also they can relate it to other things in their life so i would never do let's do handwriting we're going to do spider-man handwriting and that's sort of the laziest way of making it meaningful but probably uh, the kids i see have some core issues so we might be crawling over pillows to rescue Spider-Man, bringing him back, and then we're going to write Spider-Man on the whiteboard. You know, it might be something like that. 
if they've got core issues, we might not even be doing a whole lot of handwriting at the start. They could be in a, a hammock you can buy from Bunnings from one point, laying on their stomach like Superman, and they're pulling up a rope or bungee cord to rescue Spider-Man, and then they're going to throw him into a container. And that's working on your belly muscles, your arm muscles. It's connecting your hands and eyes together. And maybe they're even having to unclip things. Maybe it's held on by a peg that you get some fine motor in there as well. But so it should be fun and motivating to kids. Sometimes the hardest part is marrying up what's meaningful with the parents to what's meaningful with the kid. (laughs) But we do a pretty good job of that because kids who come to us with handwriting issues rarely find handwriting (laughs) meaningful. And so... We're pretty good at making it fun, finding what their interests are. And we do a lot of rescue missions, which is just basically we get them to do exercises, but they're rescuing Paw Patrol, they're rescuing Peppa Pig, they're rescuing Spider-Man and something that they're really engaged in. Whereas if we just ask them to do that activity without those things, they're not motivated. And actually our spaces are just motivating with swings and slides and ball pits. Kids don't often know that they're even doing therapy sometimes we do actually remind them we're here to work on your belly muscles and your arm muscles otherwise when we ask them to do something specific it can be hard yeah but it has a kind of play center vibe to it with some of the equipment etc but yeah making it meaningful and motivating for them is is definitely i think pediatric ot's do a wonderful job of embedding that so that the child is having fun and those skills are being built and consolidated at the same time So thank you for sharing that. That's fantastic. So tell us about a a success story now. I know you have heaps and heaps, but can you think of a particular child who may have come in, if you can remember them, kind of around the assessment stage where you were just like, wow, you know, they've got all these various sensory processing issues going on. Kind of tell us about what you saw and then the progress that they made and how they were able to, I guess, integrate those skills into their daily life functioning. Yeah, it's hard to think of one. I mean, we have a lot of kids that they go from hating handwriting to loving to write stories. They learn to ride a bike. They make friends when before they were sort of pushing people away. They're just comfortable in their classroom paying attention. I mean, one kid that comes to my mind and a kid that I I spent a lot of time with, and he's not a simple kid as terms of a simple sensory processing kid, but he did have significant sensory processing issues. He was born with some visual challenges where he couldn't see out of the left half of each of his eyes. And he just was all over the place. He was like Tigger times 10. And, you know, so he did have perfect vision out of the other half of his eye, but he didn't separate his head from his head and neck from his shoulders or his shoulder or his trunk from his pelvis. So it was like a little block that just pinged through the whole world. And so he had some real complexities. But because he had challenges with regulation, he couldn't just sit and work on anything. And by strengthening up his core, his base, in a three-dimensional way, he had more rotation through his trunk. By strengthening up his head and neck and teaching him how to scan his environment, he was able to then be able to step into a room and tune into what's in the room, be able to organise and look to what he's meant to be learning from and He's a really cool kid and he's come a long way. And the coolest part was RADBC, the Royal Institute for Deaf and Blind Children, turned up for their annual visit to him. And they had in their head that he was about seven or eight at the time. They had in their head that they were going to be giving him a dog or a cane or something like that. And as the door opened, he rushed out past them and they were like, oh, and they they asked mum and they're like, all right, so where's Johnny? 
his name was Joe. But, <laughs> and mum yeah. was like, well, that was him. And they were like floored. They nearly fell over because they could not believe that this was the kid that they had assessed way back when. And the disability that they were thinking of was less of an issue than the fact that he didn't have the ability to feel grounded and tune into the world and, and take in all that detail and develop strategies that, you know, kids don't tend to have to learn to scan their environment to get information. But if you only see out of half of each of your eye, you better learn how to scan if you want to take in the whole picture. Yes. So other than that, there's lots of little wins where kids really defensive and reactive to touch. And so they just can't have any social relationships that we just hear about. They made their first friend. They got invited to their first birthday party. Kids with ASD that mum's like, you know, he came up and gave me a hug or a kiss for the first time. And I think that their kids with ASD often do have a lot of sensory processing issues and sometimes supporting them to get on top of it can really open up their world and help them from wanting to be internally focused to being able to feel comfortable tuning into the world outside their body and those loved ones that they're with. Absolutely. There's some wonderful stories and it's a rewarding role being an OT amongst many, you know, and a speech pathologist and other health professionals, but they're those really deeply rewarding moments when you can see the domino effect of working on something or a skill and how that transfers to things like connecting, you know, with your parents, with friends, with others. And that then has a domino effect on all sorts of aspects of life. So it's really far reaching. And I think that's really important to acknowledge. The work that is done is oftentimes very positive and very far reaching in terms of having positive impact on a child and the family's life. So thank you for sharing some of those. Just a quick one, because we see this a lot at the speech pathology clinic. So can you touch on this one? Kids that wriggle a lot and are movement seeking, so they're always needing to move around. Besides, I guess, you know, sometimes and occupational therapists have them, you know, desks that can adjust. So we make sure their feet are touching the ground and that kind of thing. We've learned not to use swivel chairs and you know, those kinds of things. But I know that, you know, parents will often kind of go like, just he can't sit still or she can't sit still. More often than not, it's a he, but, you know, can't sit still. When is that? Okay, it's going to be an issue when it, they can't, you know, it's just distracting their learning, etc. Have you got any tips for parents that are struggling with kids who can't sit still? Because there's a reason they can't, obviously. Yeah. But we don't want to punish them for it. And I think that's really important, yeah. you know, to, that we don't think that they're naughty or doing something wrong. There's often a reason why they are wriggly and can't sit still. And I think it's important we bring this one up if you're okay to comment on it. Yeah, absolutely. And it, again, the sort of simple go-tos and then it is a lot more complex. It could be a variety of different reasons to do it. OTs always want to jump to the kids trying to wake their body up. And they, that might be it, that they're actually really doing a good job of waking their body up. And if they didn't do that, they would turn into Eeyore instead <laughs> of Tigger. And, I mean, to be honest, Eeyores are the ones I feel sorry for because Eeyores don't get the help. Tiggers find a way of getting help um, because they're they more might obvious. enjoy everyone crazy. Yeah. I think I'm a Tigger myself. So I would say the first you have to be understanding and know that kids really, they want to be able to do what everyone else is doing. They want to have people proud of them. They want to be able to succeed and achieve. And so it's not on purpose. And sensory processing is happening at a pre-conscious level. So what that means is you can have all the social stories in the world. They can articulate exactly what they need to do in a certain circumstance. 
but it's happening before it reaches the top of their brain. So now I'm going on a tangent here, but it makes me think of a teacher I was working with who was lovely and trying to figure it out. She actually wasn't that lovely. <laughs> she <laughs> said, I know, <laughs> I know every day he's going to go out in that playground and he's going to hit someone. And I'm like, well, if you know that, you need the behavior management plan, not him. You're the adult. And so kids don't have that good executive functions till they're sort of seven onwards. And our kids, it's sometimes later. And if you're a kid that's having problems with sensory processing, it might be a thing that you're acting on impulse before it even gets to that thinking brain. I also went into that classroom and there was something on all four walls from floor to ceiling. There was fishing line hanging diagonally across the room with body murals hanging down from it. And she was saying, I just don't get why you can't pay attention. I'm like, who said that? I can't pay attention. in this <laughs> yeah. so, so there's things we want to support the child with, but I think we can also look at the environment, including so the physical and sensory environment, but also the social environment, how to support them and the way we set up those tasks to help them. So that was a long way to get back to the idea of I would be saying, all right, they're wriggling. Is that helping or is that hurting what they're trying to do? Is that getting in the way of function or is that helping function? Because sometimes that helps them pay attention. And we do also have to look at is that interrupting someone else's ability to do that? So if you're laying all over your neighbour in class, well, that's not helpful. But so... Is that child doing it because that particular input helps them engage in what you're asking them to do? And if that's the case, you don't want to take that away without replacing it with something else. And so, yeah, it was cool to hear you say feet on the floor. A lot of people miss that. A lot of OTs that are into the sensory piece are wanting to get kids on gym balls or wriggle cushions or whatever it is, but we put this kid on a wriggle cushion and suddenly their feet can't touch. That's not going to work either. So you want to have nice stability, 90 degrees at the ankles, knees and hips. And then maybe you want to give them some movement by sitting on something that wriggles and then you have to adjust the seating again because they're now three inches higher off the ground. People put TheraBand on a chair so they can kick off it. People have fidget toys. There are different things that you can do. And that's primarily if it's helping and we want to give them ways to do that that's in a more rhythmic, organized way that isn't interfering with their their peers. Sometimes it's not helping. And so then we need to think about, well, what else do they need? And, and that gets a bit more complex. But I guess the other thing is we talk about sensory diet and sensory processing. That's the input we give kids. Is this a good time to chat about that? I think it's sort of fits. Yeah, I was going to ask. I was going to say, yep, kids are prescribed sensory diets. If you can tell us a bit about that. Yeah. So sensory diet is is what input you give your body throughout the day. So we all have sensory diets. We don't all have good sensory diets, but I mean, most of us have a shower and can say, I have to have a shower in the morning or I have to have a shower. When I do trainings, it's usually 50-50, put their hands up for each, and then a random eight people say they did both. I don't know. And so some of that's function, right? You know, some of that is you're a bricklayer, you're definitely going to come home and have a shower at night because you're dirty, but you might do one in the morning to wake up as well. So we all have that. Some of us have to have a run in the morning. That's the only way we can start our day. We can really think about that for our kids and we can think about, you know, what is their body telling us? What is their body seeking? That gives us clues about what their bodies think is going to be helpful. So we look at their preferences. We look at the time of the day. When are they too high or too low? And then we just put some things in before that. So to set their bodies up for success. So for that kid who's not sitting at the, having trouble sitting at the table, would 10 minutes of something else help them do that? 
And so there's things to set you up and then there's things that you can do to maintain you. So jumping on a trampoline is a great setup, but it's not really accessible when you need to do homework. Playing with a fidget toy is not very powerful. You need to do it almost indefinitely to get an effect. And you probably need to set rules around if it stays in your hand and it helps you pay attention, you can keep it. But it's something that is accessible during circle time or something else. My, I would say one example that ha- comes up a lot is, he's driving me crazy. We just have to do 15 minutes of homework and then he can go out and play. And it's an hour battle and we struggle. And all he says he wants to go on the trampoline. And I'm like, you just have to do 15 minutes. And we argue for 45 minutes. And I say there's no trampoline and it feels horrible into dinner. And so then Dave, the OT goes, well, what about if you had 10 minutes on the trampoline and you test it out and you can say, Dave thinks that if you have 10 minutes on the trampoline, it might help you do homework. If you get off the trampoline at 10 minutes and if you sit down and do your homework, we can do that for the rest of the week. So setting that expectations is often clear. Sometimes kids have to pay a lot of attention during the school day and it is fatiguing. Yes. And they get home and sometimes just setting those parameters rather than holding a great sensory strategy hostage as a reward, maybe putting it in to set the body up for success with good parameters so that it knows the expectations and then you can sit down and do the work. And then you have 10 minutes of trampoline, you do 15 minutes of homework, and then you get to go back out for another half an hour and there's not the fight and everyone wins. So I would just always get back to Kids aren't doing this on purpose. Kids want to be able to do what they need to, but look to their bodies and that'll tell you whether they're ready to be able to do it. Yep. Fantastic. Yes, that is super valuable. And I think it's also, it helps us to also acknowledge and think about the way that we actually seek our own sensory regulation because we're doing it all the time in our own way, whether it's, you know, I'm listening to you, Dave, and I'm tapping my right foot, (laughs) you know, or whatever it is, you know, fidgeting with a pen. Adults, Adults have their own ways, little ways, and sometimes larger ways, as you said, to regulate. And I think it's important that we just, yeah, observe our kids and see what they need and and try to get some balance as best we can. And I like your example of after a day of school, they are often tired. They've often had a day of listening to a lot of instructions and being told what to do. And I personally, I've found it's fantastic for them to come home and you're just going, you know what, you guys make the decisions, obviously set some parameters, but make some decisions about what you want to do. And allowing them that time to just go, yeah, I'm going to go outside, I'm going to whatever climb on stuff, ride my bike, give them some options so that they can also learn to read their own signals. And I think, yeah, that kind of complements some of what you've been talking about. So can you, and I'm mindful of time here, Dave, just tell us a little bit about understanding the journey from childhood to adulthood for a person with sensory processing difficulties. And one thing I do have to just quickly say, you know, we talk about sensory processing and ASD is very much, you know, coupled together. However, it's important to know that a person can have sensory processing difficulties without a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. And I think I just wanted to just quickly highlight that because I don't think we've really highlighted that. But can you give us a bit of an example of, you know, childhood to adulthood what might it look like on that journey? What strategies of some of, do some of these people kind of learn and carry through to make every day more functional? Yeah, like you said, almost all kids with ASD do have sensory processing issues, but there's lots of people with sensory processing challenges. And sometimes we don't even think they're challenges. We just call them differences. It's about a fit with the world. So there are lots of different 
ways that this plays out. So in terms of how they grow into adulthood is, is a tricky question to answer, but because it is varied. But everyone, and I think all of us, like you said, could put a bit of thought into our own sensory diet. But these guys do grow up, kids that are sensitive, I mean, everyone tends to be a little less sensitive as they grow older, a little more sensitive, sorry, to things like movement. So do you remember you could spin and spin as a kid? Now, if you tried that, (laughs) you'd probably throw up instantly. Yeah. I mean, most people find their niches, find where they fit. And for me, it's not about, I often say no one's ever died of an OT emergency, but then I also don't work in in areas around feeding and some of the yes, things where this is true. Get, yes. I mean, we do work with feeding with our kids, but there are OTs in hospitals, but no one's ever died of an OT emergency. But I, to me, it's about whether your world gets bigger or your world gets smaller. And so I think untreated, it's like, yeah, you don't have to play professional basketball. I'm five foot four. I'm never going to play competitive basketball, but I can have fun shooting hoops, right? And in terms of school, yeah, you know, are you comfortable playing out on the playground? You know, will you be someone who, you know, can play some things for fun, who can get out and about, who can go to a birthday party of someone they care about without being stressed out and exhausted for three days afterwards. And so treated versus untreated can be the difference between having a pretty narrow world and a broader range of options and strategies to support yourself in those options. So people, as they get older, do find what works for them, do find what they need. You know, do they need to go for that run in the morning? How do they organize their day? What sort of workplace are they going to be? Is it with lots of people or is it working from home? And I do think that even though some of these things don't seem like big deals, I sort of mentioned it earlier, when your perception of the world is thrown off, that's really stressful. And so you are at a much higher risk for mental health challenges in adolescence and adulthood as well. And so sometimes that plays out more as a mental health disorder in adulthood, untreated, And only now are people starting to say, well, look, let's look at the sensory piece to this adult as, but a lot, it's not a death sentence either. You know, if someone overreacts to touch, they'll be a functioning adult probably and things will go fine. Most of the kids I see, they're going to find their niche and they're going to do well in the world. Fantastic. And yes, thank you for bringing up the mental health aspect as well, because it is very strongly coupled. And here in Australia, anyway, it is acknowledged through you know, some of the government funding where OTs who are trained specifically to be able to provide services with mental health funding support from the government, that that is an availability as well. And that in itself does acknowledge the coupling, you know, of the mental health and some of the issues that OTs work with. So thank you for bringing that up as well. So just to finish up with Dave, what is your message to parents, to carers, or even educators who might have concerns for their own children or the children that they work with? Yeah, I think I would just say, know that kids are doing their best, but sometimes their bodies may react differently to yours or mine. So we need to be patient. We need to read the clues that their bodies are giving us and that you can seek out someone and just ask some questions without having to sign up for a lifetime of therapy. Winnie Dunn, who created the sensory profile test, she doesn't even like to talk about sensory processing disorders. She talks about sensory processing differences. And I actually really like that. On the one hand, I think it's true. You know, it's this kid is who they are. And sometimes actually those sensory processing differences mean they're uniquely good at some things. Kids who are auditorily defensive, so they react to sound. I bet that is almost every amazing violin player. They can't handle hearing that it's slightly off key. So it's not that we want to take away from these things. We just want them to be as adaptable as they can in the world and be able to 
feel comfortable in a range of different environments. And, it's, and you know, there's some element where the world should be able to accommodate different people. And that would be Winnie Dunn's model is that the world needs to change, not these people. But as a parent, I would also say that world's not going to change quick enough for my kid. So I'm going to try and make the world change, but I'm also going to help this kid have a body that's a little more adaptable and flexible so that we can, you know, go to the shopping center so that we can have groups of friends, even if they brush past me and that we can shoot hoops, even if we're not going to play competitive basketball. Wonderful. And I think even to extend that further, as we would often see in therapy and we do, when the child reaches a stage of having a little bit more awareness themselves explicitly of their own parameters and abilities and their own differences and they're accepting of that and they're not feeling down about themselves about it. It's just like, it's just part of who I am. And they look at the strengths within that and how to use that. It's absolutely empowering. So absolutely. Yeah. So I think that's also a really key message to add to that. I hope you don't mind, Dave, but as you were talking, it you know, it just made me really think about that because we see it so often with the kids that, that we all work with. Dave, where can we learn more about sensory processing and you know, are there websites that you recommend for parents and professionals? Yeah, I tend to recommend there's a place in Colorado called the Star Center. So that's Lucy Miller's clinic and she's one of the most well-known OTs who's currently around, who's done some research on sensory processing. So she has a clinic over there, but I think it's spdstar.org is their website and they have a lot of information and they run webinars. Just to give a family plug, I would say my sister's course, (laughs) Traffic (laughs) Jam in My Brain, is, you know, I used to be embarrassed about recommending it because of the bias, but I used to be actually biased away from it because she's my sister. But it is the best course for non-OTs, new OTs and parents. She is engaging. I can say I'm the shy one in my family, but she is charismatic and so there's an online training that she does every year and she does it in person something called traffic jam in my brain and it's just a one-day workshop that's such a good introduction to parents it's engaging it's fun but there's so many ways that you can relate to it and, and find yourself and your child absolutely you know i did that a number of years ago as did some of my staff at the time and i agree with you i think she's got an amazing way of presenting information that is super easy to understand And as you said, it's just a one day, it's not overly time consuming. So you are able to absorb that info pretty quickly and understand it and grasp it quite easily. And on the webinar, you can do it in modules. So you can do it like an hour at a time. Wonderful. And can I say, because I know you mentioned, you know, it's great for new OTs or experienced OTs, that I would actually extend that to other allied health professionals as well. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. I say new OTs, non-OTs and parents. Non-OTs. There's a a level of complexity that OTs after a while, I think we need to get more of the neuro and more detail. But for anyone who's new to OT or for speeches, psychs, educators and parents, there's not a course like it in the world. So I, I think it's a great place to start. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Dave, for sharing all your expertise. It's been amazing. And no doubt there will be many kids and families who are going to be very appreciative for everything that you've shared with us today on Chat About Children. Thank you. No worries. Thanks for inviting me on. That was really fun. A super insightful chat there with Dave Jerob, occupational therapist. I do encourage you to have a look at those resources, including the courses and the websites that he did mention. You'll find those on our uh, website, chataboutchildren.com. You'll find that within the show notes. So I do encourage you to have a look at that. Now, if you have enjoyed today's episode, please do share it with family, with friends, 
and with colleagues. It certainly does add value and it can start a chat out there that can benefit many children and many families around the world. I'm so grateful for your attention. I celebrate you and look forward to chatting soon. Thanks for joining the Chat About Children with Sonia Vestalich, www.chataboutchildren.com. 